I think that it's so great that you are creating this community of people that are doing it along the way, because I think that is probably your, your secret sauce. Because when people are going through difficulty, the research is showing that if you have someone with you on the journey, you are much more likely to succeed than the people who are doing it by themselves. And the power, like I said, in the book social, the power of that social connection and people who understand the journey and feel your pain, feel your joy, celebrate with you, you are much, much more likely to achieve a goal than if you're just out there on your own. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really difficult to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from this year's Sober Spring WhatsApp group. Good morning, Sober Springers. Chantal here. I joined Sober Spring Challenge last year thinking that I'd try and go 66 days and have a break from alcohol. It's honestly been one of the best challenges I've ever done. I adopted the attitude that this was for me and didn't allow comments from friends or family to deter me. I became curious, listened to podcasts, connected with like-minded people, signed up as a member of the best tribe around, and at the end of this month, it'll be a year. So those of you starting the challenge, well done. Face it head on with an attitude of excitement. Get ready to grow and glow. Your body and your mind will thank you. Start, keep going, don't give up. The best is yet to come. So if you want to join our community and do a sober spring this year, just go to tribesober.com and check us out. My guest this week is Stacey Dunfield, who had a pretty unique career change in midlife. She went from art teacher to neuroscientist. After two decades of teaching, Stacey decided it was a perfect time to go back to school and pursue her long-time passion of neuroscience. Her master's degree in mind, brain and education combines scientific research and a cognitive awareness of how the brain processes information. Stacy is an expert in brain patterns. She loves making science simple and teaching people practical ways to use their brain to change their lives. Here at Tribe Sober, we often say that sobriety is a superpower and it certainly gives you a surge of energy, creativity and motivation. Now we have Stacy's advice, we can take this one step further by understanding how our brains can work for us instead of against us. So let's go to our conversation. Okay. I live and born and raised in Texas. Uh, This is the only place I've ever lived. Uh, As a kid, I lived in West Texas and lived on a farm and the cows, chickens, horses, all the things people think of when they think of Texas. And we lived on, you know, 100 plus acres. And I didn't really understand anything about town because we lived way out in the country and it was just my brother and I. So if I didn't play with my brother, I didn't have mom wasn't going to town to get me a friend. So I learned early to the importance of connection, 
with the people you're around. And I didn't know that, you know, until way later on. But I also learned to be resilient. And I think being a kid from the country has benefited me many times along my road because things don't work out always like you want and you can't fix them quickly, which is very country. And you've got to figure out how to make it work with what you've got. It sounds, Stacey, as if you changed direction in midlife like many of us have. I I wanted to ask you what the catalyst was for this change and how you ended up starting the the Grateful Brain. Yes, it was a big catalyst because I have uh, two grown children. I have a son that's 31 who's about, I'm going to have a grandbaby in one week from today. Um, And then I have a daughter that's 28. And then I have a little son who's 13. So there's almost 20 years difference between my oldest and my youngest. And um, his father is the one who, my little son, is the one who left me um, pretty much right after my 49th birthday. And I had just declared to a room full of people that my 49th birthday was going to be the best year of my life. And that I was going to turn 50 with my roller skates on fire. I was like, I'm going to do one awesome thing every single month of my 49th birthday. So when I turn 50, I will have done 12 exciting things and I'm going to be 50 and be proud of it. And literally two weeks later, my husband, who had held my hand that day, told me he loved me that day, looked at me and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't love you anymore and I haven't in years and I can't be here. And I was like, in this day or this house or this life? And he said, in this life. And he packed all of his stuff and left. And that's pretty much the only explanation I've gotten to this day. But I I mean, I was devastated and it, I didn't see it coming, which I think is part of where the devastation came from is I wasn't expecting it. So I had now understand the brain. I had no pathways to prepare myself for this. And I sat on the floor and cried for about two weeks. And, you know, I had a little eight-year-old at the time. And I realized that I had left all of my happiness in the hands of someone else. And it was like a magic wake-up call for me. And I was like, girl, get up, get up. This is your life. You do it the way you want to. You're in charge of your happiness. You cannot wait for another man to make you feel valuable and important. If you don't feel it yourself, you're never going to do it. And now's your time. And 49 is going to be the best year of your life. So I decided then to go back to grad school (laughs) at 49. And um, I was a teacher and I switched from being an art teacher to a neuroscientist But I had always been fascinated. (laughs) That was a big step. I'd always been fascinated by the brain and read hundreds and hundreds of books over the years. And I knew there was something about how people think. And I'd watched it in a classroom that certain people's brains worked one way and emotion affected them. On the days my students were happy, they learned better. On the days they were sad, they didn't. And I knew they were a smart student. So I knew it wasn't their intelligence that was affecting them. I knew it was emotion. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go learn why. I'm going to go figure this out. And I got into grad school and here I am today. (laughs) Thank you. So let's talk about the brain a little bit, Stacey. You You can educate me. Um, do you have any explanation about why we become dependent on alcohol? It's I gather about the dopamine and we, we get this nice buzz and we want to you know, recreate the buzz and keep the buzz going. Any explanations for us? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yes. Well, I myself have never had issues with alcohol, but my family is riddled with drugs and alcohol. And my brother died of a drug overdose 18 years ago. And, you know, and even though it was prescription drugs, people tend to think, you know, those aren't drugs. Anything that's affecting the chemical makeup of your body and your brain is a drug and it's affecting you. Um, But I can tell you that my dad, he 
was an alcoholic until he was 65. And when I told him I was pregnant with my little son, he said, I will never have another grandkid. No, I'm a drunk. And he said, I'm going to go in this hotel room and I'm going to come out dead or I'm going to come out sober. Do not advise anyone else to do that method. But for him, that was what he needed. He needed a real reason. And all those years that we tried to convince him until you decide for yourself, it doesn't work. And that's why rehab only has a 13.8% success rate. It is one of the lowest success rates of anything. And in the scientific community, if we had a test study that had such low results, we would say it's a failure and move on. But there's just not a system that people have figured out that works better. So that's the one, you know, kind of they keep going to. But what alcohol does to the brain is so complex because it tricks you into thinking that it's making you happy because it does give you the dopamine and the serotonin, which are happy chemicals. And so it makes you feel happy, but it's also a depressant of the central nervous system. And it creates an inhibitory response in the brain, which means it inhibits your body functions, which is why you slur speech and talk slow, you know, you do those things because it's inhibiting your responses. So even though it activates excitatory response in the brain, it also activates inhibitory. And so it, it tricks you into thinking this is the best way for me to get dopamine. But what they have found is that chronic drinkers, so people who have been drinking for a long time, it alters the balance of your brain which is the scary part. And it shuts down these inhibitory responses to create more of the excitatory response in your brain. So that's why you want it more and you like it more and you need it more. But what it's doing is affecting the adaptability of the brain. And the adaptation system just simply means like the more you use, the more you need. And so what one drink used to do, four drinks won't do now. And so it means you need six and then you need eight and then you need 12 because it's affecting that adaptability process, turning off the inhibitory and creating too much of the excitatory, which makes you get in that frenzy. I need this. I want so stressed out. I've got to have a drink right now. That, that almost panicky feeling. So even though it does depress the central nervous system over chronic periods of time, it almost shuts that off and raises the excitatory, which is the scary part, because that's when your Absolutely. body, thinks, this is, yeah, this is the way I get dopamine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, towards the end of my, my drinking, which really stepped up for a decade or so, the last decade that I was drinking, I, I could drink two bottles of wine and not feel anything, you know. Right. So uh, that's, that's absolute proof of, of what you were saying. And it's scary, though, because um, in about five minutes, alcohol crosses the blood-brain barrier. Antibiotics do not always cross the blood-brain barrier. So that's why people that get, you know, some parasite or some brain illnesses are very hard to work with because it's it's hard to cross this barrier. But alcohol does cross the blood-brain barrier. And so it it affects your brain in about 5 minutes, but then its impact starts in about 10 minutes or so. So even though we don't think, you know, we're drunk yet or whatever, it has absolutely started impacting that inhibitory, excitatory response of your brain. And depending on how much alcohol you have in your system and over how long period of time, you're affecting that balance. And so you can drink two bottles of wine and think it's not affecting you, but it yep. may be not affecting you physically. And that's in the cerebellum, but it is affecting that response system in your brain. And altering the dopamine for sure yeah yeah i mean they call it a neurotoxin don't they yes yeah <laughs> that's a bit of a giveaway yes in <laughs> fact it was it was what i felt alcohol was doing to my brain that scared me into stopping in the end because i was um 
I think I knew it was having an effect physically and, and I had had breast cancer and I decided that that was possibly due to my decades of drinking, but I still carried on. Then I started having blackouts, you know, really nasty yeah. blackouts, the kind of blackouts that people say, oh, you seemed fine. You know, you were walking and chatting, but I had no recollection. And that really frightened me. I thought, what on wow. earth am I doing to my brain? And I, yes. I did explore it a little bit. You might have a better explanation, but from what I could gather, um, it's not that you've forgotten stuff. It's that your brain is so soaked in alcohol, it can't even make memories in the first place. And yes. I thought, how frightening is that? I'm well, going to quit. Oh, that's so scary. One of the areas that the brain, the alcohol affects is the hippocampus. And that area is in the limbic system, which is the emotional part of the brain, some people call it. But the hippocampus is also where they think that lots of the memory cortex or the memory area of the brain is. And so even though the memory went into short term while you were doing it, it never passed over to get into long term. And the the impact of the short term was so quick that it, it's as if it never happened at all because the hippocampus is, like you said, soaked in alcohol. But that's where uh, the limbic system is also where lots of the chemicals are coming from. And it's very, you know, the research on it is so incredible. And they're changing the ability to see inside a human brain with new technology. And it's pretty impressive to see how neurons are being affected by everything that we do, but particularly anything that alters those chemicals. And like you said, a neurotoxin, you know, first of all, take the toxin out of, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, that's poison. And a neuro means brain. So it's a brain talk. Frightening. When you think how normalized it is in the world, you know, and how you're, you're thought a bit of an oddball if you don't drink. Yes. And, and I think even like commercials and social media and parties, and it's one of the few drugs that is actually encouraged because, oh, lighten up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they say terms yeah. like that, which make you feel like something's wrong with you if you do not participate. And it affects that social area of the brain. And there is an amazing book called Social by Dr. Uh, Lieberman that talks about how the brain is wired to be social. And when you are feeling pain in a social situation, like I don't fit in or I need liquid courage or I'm just not brave enough or whatever, your brain is actually also telling you, you've got to fit in. You have to fit in because that's what gives you serotonin as well. When you feel you fit in a social setting. And so it's almost a double-edged sword when you're in these social, you know, places and people are, everybody else is drinking and they look happy and you're feeling as though you don't fit. Well, then you've got two things bombarding your brain of, okay, something must be wrong with you because you don't look happy. You don't feel happy. You don't fit. You need a drink and that'll solve the problem because look at all these people. They're happy. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why early sobriety is so difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We always say um, alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so You tell true. your friends you've given up snorting cocaine, they'd be pleased with you. And you say yeah. you've stopped gr- drinking and it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you're it's, boring. It's crazy. And it's always symbolic of you had a problem. And so that registers in the brain too. Like when you quit drinking, oh, you must have had a problem. And so your brain is like, we are problematic. We have weaknesses. We have shortcomings. So it's so important for people to understand. And this is where I wish the rehab community would actually function on brain activity, not just the stopping and the, you know, even though that has its place as well. But when people understand how their brain is working and you work with your brain, the way your brain was designed to work, you're not going to out-design your own brain. It, It is the most complex system we have yet to discover. And when you work with it and understand how it is functioning, it is like the magic success pill in the world because you are using the most complex system in the universe. And if you think of, you know, people think a computer is so smart. 
but we work with a computer the way it was designed to work. We don't get hammers out and, you know, do the keyboard and we don't pull the, you know, the top off our laptop because we want to go in there. We close the whole thing. You use it the way it was designed to work. Your brain is the same way. And all of these things are patterns and systems. And when you can access that pattern and access that system, you can understand, oh, this is what I'm doing. I need to stop feeling bad about myself because I don't want to drink. I need to activate. I'm getting healthy. I am feeling strong. I am making a choice because I am powerful. Focus on what you are gaining, not what you are losing, because then you're telling your brain you're strong instead of your brain telling you you're weak. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Fantastic. Yeah. And in fact, we are gaining so much more than we're losing, you know, yes. personal experience of that. You know, I've lost my blackouts, my hangovers, my morning guilt. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. you know, I've, I've gained enormous amounts and feel so much better. So really, when we give up drinking, we, we need to build a new neural pathway, don't we? So, yes. so talk to us a bit about building a new neural pathway. It's so powerful because our brains, like I said, they work in patterns. And what the research is showing is that patterns fire at the beginning of a pattern and at the end of a pattern. But this whole middle section is what is kind of going on subconsciously without you because your brain has done it so many times that it thinks, oh, this is what she's going to do. She's going to feel nervous. She's going to drink. And then you know, at the end, she's going to feel bad, but we don't care about any of that stuff in the middle. And so what you need to create is called a pattern interrupter. And you need to open that pattern long enough for it to switch pathways and rewire in a different place. So it's when people try to, to stop drinking, a lot of times they're also trying other things. They're trying to get healthy. They're trying to work out. They're like, okay, I'm going to get all, I'm going to get healthy that really is a little bit detrimental to what your brain can do. It's very hard to alter multiple habits at one time and it can be done, but it is very difficult. And it's so important for you to focus on the successes of changing the habit because then your brain is processing the success. So instead of looking all the way at the future of, Oh my gosh, I'm ne- I haven't drank for 20 years. You've got to like today I didn't drink. I'm so proud of myself. Look at today. I wanted to, I didn't, I thought of something positive or whatever people use to to keep themselves from negative habits. Because when you are focusing on the drive that gets you to the goal, your brain starts going, oh, we're not a failure all the way to it. We are succeeding along the way. And when it processes the success along the way, that's when it can start moving those patterns because it's each step is like a cog in the wheel. If you think about like a clock, you know, you want each click to be successful instead of not getting any success until you get to the very end. Each of those steps is going to um, fire the the dopamine and the happy chemicals, isn't it? Each of the steps on the way to to the bigger goal from what I understand. Yes. And people think dopamine only comes when you reach a goal or, you know, when you get the thing that you were wanting. But that's not really what the newest research is showing is that it's the drive and the excitement on the way that creates lasting dopamine that your brain will go, Oh, this is what we can do for longevity. We can always be proud of ourselves on the way instead of getting at the end. And an analogy that I use all the time with my clients is if you decide one day you want to run a marathon, you don't sign up and go run the Boston marathon tomorrow. Like you got to do a little training along the way. You don't just go do 26 miles. And that's the way your brain is like the stopping alcohol is not is like the marathon, but you've got to give yourself some success along the way. I mean, there are, you know, a few exceptions. My dad is one. I wouldn't advise that for anyone, but 
for people who want that to become their habit of being healthy, of being able to understand what their brain is doing, you've got to teach your brain, oh my gosh, look at me, look at me go. I'm successful. That will give you dopamine that your brain is like, oh yeah, we are, we are successful. Because when you are feeling that desire to, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out, or these people are driving me crazy, I've got to have a drink. Whatever the reason is people want to drink, that is your lizard brain. And that is your brain telling you, you need to escape from something negative, which feels painful to the body. Um, And so, you know, there could be a pain of rejection. Maybe it's a social interaction, which still feels like pain. Um, Because Dr. Lieberman talks about how emotional pain and physical pain, they register in the same place in the brain, same exact place. So your brain doesn't differentiate heartache from your arm hurting. Of course, you know, it's in a little bit of a different wiring system, but they still hurt. The only problem is we can't point to emotional pain. We can point to physical pain. So people don't always think it's real and they don't understand it as much. But what he found out is when that pain sensor, you know, activates, your brain automatically is like, please give me some relief here. Like this does not feel good. So that's when people start reaching for the things that make them feel good, which is that quick dopamine hit of, oh my gosh, I want coffee or, oh my gosh, I want gambling or I want alcohol. I want sex, whatever their addiction is. So your brain thinks the thing made you better. But really, it was the desire to have it and the the scapegoat. The dopamine comes before the actual first sip. And it's fascinating to see how the brain is like, ah, it's almost like a little kid jumping up and down at a birthday party. Like, give me, give me, give me. And then it's like, ah, yeah, that's what we wanted. And it's it's really like anticipation, isn't it? Yes, yes. And it's that lizard brain saying, protect yourself protect yourself. You don't want to feel the pain of rejection or whatever anxiety or abandonment, whatever it is, this will make you feel better. This is how we've done it for 20 years. Hey, you know, so think of your lizard brain as a separate entity from you. And I talk to my lizard all the time. And I tell people, if you don't talk to your brain, your brain will talk to you. The only problem is it says what it always says. And for most people, that's not your best choice. So when I feel my lizard brain activate and I want my scapegoats, I'm like, oh my gosh, there I go again. I say that phrase all the time. There I go again, responding with an old pattern. And I talk to my lizard and I've named my lizard Earl. And I I suggest for everybody to name your lizard brain because it'll help you separate it from you. You are not the lizard brain. That is the oldest part of your brain. It's the autonomic nervous system, which is meant to work on autopilot, autonomic. It is doing the things that you don't need to worry about, your heartbeat, your digestion, your breathing, but it also controls patterns and your reticular activating system, which is how you see the world. So when that lizard brain fires, it will go on auto drive unless you stop the pattern. And so I always say, Earl, there you are again, trying to make me do things that I know better. That's how my 14-year-old self would act. Remember, I've got 40 more years of information. And I even say sometimes, okay, Earl, you can go with me, but you don't get to pick the radio station. You don't get to ride in the front seat and you don't get to make any choices today. (laughs) I love that. Name your lizard, Blaine. Uh Um, let's go back to the neural pathway, Stacey. I wanted to run something past you. Uh, here in South Africa, it's spring quite soon, next month. So on the 1st of September, we launched something. We've done it for years now. We call it our Sober Spring Challenge. And we offer support for 66 alcohol-free days. So we offer this as a kind of health kick and also obviously to people with a bit of a, a problem. And what we do is we encourage people not to drink for 66 days. We have a community, so everybody's working through those days together and all chatting with each other. We offer that we, we send a, an email every day. We do a little mini podcast, you know, just bite-sized pieces of information. 
And it works really well. We also give them a tracker. So every single day they can fill in a little square if they were alcohol free, you know, so you can see at a glance how well people are doing. And it works really well. And we claim, (laughs) once it's around this past year, if it's true, we claim that you can build a new neural pathway if you stay on track for the 66 days. And people have, you know, a lot of them have said, well, actually, I feel so good at the end of 66 days. I don't think I am going to start drinking again. And others, you know, that have struggled for years have felt that it's got, got a lot easier after those 66 days. So what's your view on that? Is that long enough? Uh, We picked on 66 days because there is a study um, done by a lady called Philippa Lally, who's based in in London. And, um, you know, she's a researcher at a renowned place. I can't remember its name now. But she um, experimented and did lots of research and surveys and concluded that 66 days was enough to build a new neural pathway. So that's where we've kind of based our challenge on. And I just wanted to, to run it past you. I, I have never heard of her, so I, I don't know her research. But I would for sure say you're definitely on your way by the time 66 days gets there. They used to say that it took 21 days to build a new habit. Um, but the research I've seen shows that it takes 21 days to start a new habit in, in like you're creating the little pathways. You're like, okay, this might be working out for me, but it takes 90 days for it to become solidified. So I would say the 66 is definitely long enough for the pathways to have be, you know, bonded together. But I would say for the people that said, Oh, this feels so much easier. Once they get to 90 days, you're solidifying that new pattern in place. However, I think that it's so great that you are creating this community of people that are doing it along the way, because I think that is probably your your secret sauce. Because when people are going through difficulty, the research is showing that if you have someone with you on the journey you are much more likely to succeed than the people who are doing it by themselves. And the power, like I said, in the book social, the power of that social connection and people who understand the journey and feel your pain, feel your joy, celebrate with you. You are much, much more likely to achieve a goal than if you're just out there on your own. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, I'd agree. It's the, the community that, that makes it happen. It always amazes me. I mean, this will be the fourth year that we've done this now. And basically, we take a bunch of, of random people that have applied to do this challenge from all over the world, and we put them together in a group, and they you know start off quite... Uh, bit shy at the beginning uh-huh. <laughs> and then you know they gradually bond after a few days they've already started because we say august is a prep month you know that's when people sign up and they kind of welcome each other and there's such a beautiful vibe on there you know it it restores my faith in human nature because yes. they're really rooting for each other you know and somebody has a, a clear week and everybody else is saying oh well done that's amazing and then someone falls off the bus as we call it the sober bus uh-huh. and then everyone's saying oh you know forgive yourself move on you know mark, right. mark your little square black but move on get back on the bus don't you know go off on a, right. a three-week binge <laughs> so it, it's beautiful and yeah in community are you familiar with that experiment uh, called rat park yes yes and it is incredible for people. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. And, and yeah. especially like that was heroin. And I mean, I think they've done it actually with cocaine and heroin. <clears throat> but when they found out that these rats who were highly addicted to, you know, a narcotic would no longer desire the narcotic when they had little rat toys and little rat friends rather than being alone they understood there is something different that's happening in the brain when you are isolated and when you are alone that makes you feel like you've got to have an out versus when I have people with me, they're rooting for me, they're on my team, they can struggle with me. And um, Dr. Andrew Huberman is one of my favorite 
uh, neuroscience researchers. And he talks about um, the brain chemical uh, tachykinin. And tachykinin is what is released when we are in isolation. So, I mean, my goodness, the pandemic has left, you know, the whole world with a tachykinin. And what they, he says is that tachykinin and oxytocin are on two ends of the same spectrum. And oxytocin is the love hormone, the trustworthy, I feel bonded, I feel secure. And tachykinin is the isolation hormone that really is creating this feeling of, I need more isolation. Nobody accepts me. And, and it tricks the brain into thinking, you can't be out here because you're not accepted. So be here by yourself. But while it's there by itself, it's also releasing more of the hormone that makes you feel sad and alone and all by yourself. And so community, like the rats, they because their tachykinin was gone when they got back over here with their other little friends, and they were getting dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and, and endorphins from you know doing little rat exercises, they were getting all of the happy chemicals. And they no longer had the desire for even a narcotic that is highly addictive. It's a, it's an amazing study. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's really old. I think it must be 60 years old now, but it's, it's beautiful piece of, of research. And we always say that connection is the opposite of addiction. Yes. Because if, if we don't have other people to connect with, we're going to connect with a, a substance and we recommend, uh, we, we run workshops, you know, to help people give up drinking. And we recommend that they write a goodbye to alcohol letter, which is like writing to a lover and saying goodbye, uh -huh. because alcohol is like an abusive lover when yeah. you develop a problem with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk, talking of that, we have, um, we've helped hundreds of people now, and we've got lots of sober people in our community. But now and again, somebody will say something like, uh, well, I've been sober for a year now and it, it's been fantastic. And I feel that I can drink moderately now. So I'm just going to have the odd glass of wine when I go out. What calm can that be? And almost always, a few months later, they're back and they say, oh, dear, it didn't work. So does that mean that we've the neural pathway that we built, our drinking neural pathway, that's a permanent thing, is it? Yes. It, it will always be there. It depends on yeah. how long it's interesting because it's, it's, it's been there, I think. But the desire for it is attached to a trigger or a trauma. And that trauma is, of course, going to still be there. So depending on what led you to alcohol in the first place, but more than likely it, it will stay there. And, and it is a terrible yeah, thing for people to think that, oh, I'm, I'm well now. I'm good. I can go back to the thing that made me sick in the first place. And it's, I, call, <laughs> I call that the Elvis syndrome. And it's like when people die, all you see is the wonderful things and you forget the things that got them there in the first place. And, yeah. and so that's the way our brain does, too it lives on the Elvis syndrome and you forget that there were all these bad things connected to it because you're, the bad things haven't been there in so long. And so your brain is holding these other things and you're like, Oh yeah, that's not a problem. Now I know so much more. I can do things better. I've got good habits. But the problem is when you put the bad habit back in, you're reactivating all those bad patterns, which are really strong and this one year is not going to equal these 15 because this pathway is tighter and stronger and more powerful than this one you've only had for 60 days or a year or even five years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently there's even a name for that. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called fading effect bias. No. And our brain, exactly as you said, it it just uh, remembers the good times that we had when we were drinking and it forgets the hangovers and the blackouts yes. and the bad times that we had because um, our brain tricks us, yes. that's all. It absolutely. So, so many, yeah. And, it, I, you know, I have clients that have been in abusive situations or, you know, domestic violence, and they've been out of it for a while. And then the other person is really sweet and wants them to come back and all that. They do the same thing. They get the Elvis syndrome and they forget that there were 
things that made them be in this mess in the first place. Well, then, of course, when they go back, their brain goes back to the patterns and they it's the same thing. So I think the, exactly. the letter that you have them write is fabulous. That is a genius idea because it's reminding you. I think they need to keep that letter and reread it so they can reactivate. Why was I breaking up with this? Why am I leaving this? Because those little pathways will they'll disappear under the covers, but they're still there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, many people, it certainly happened to me in the uh, in the first few months of sobriety, I felt great. I was thinking I, I was in the pink cloud, as AA call, calls it, and I thought, oh, you know, this isn't that difficult. Um, I, I can do this. You know, why didn't I do it years ago? And I felt okay. And then after about three months, my mood absolutely plummeted, and I felt kind of flat and miserable and depressed, and I nearly gave up a hundred times. I was thinking, well, if this is sobriety, you know, I'm not interested but I just kind of hung in there and hung in there. And then after two months of feeling really down, then I got this idea that maybe I could start a sobriety group and, you know, uh, connect with other people that were trying to get sober, which I did. And that's the start of what I'm doing today. And then things improved. So, um, I'm wondering, you know, why I, I felt so flat. Is it something about the happy chemicals haven't triggered again? Or yeah, that's, what happens? Because I guess we rely on alcohol, don't we, for years to make us feel good. And then we stop and our brain must think, uh. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? But that's part of that adaptability and the altering of that chemical balance and that shutting down of the external excitatory response and the inhibitory response. And after, you know, a couple of months, that's when your brain is like, okay, I guess she's not going to put any more of this in here. We're going to have to go back and balance ourselves back out. And because your, your brain is wanting to keep you in that state of balance. I mean, that's part of what the brain does is, is balance out those two sets of inhibitory and excitatory. And it has gotten so used to the external excitatory coming in because you've, you've been doing this for years and years and now you've shut it off and it, it really does take months. And that's usually when people hit that lull and they're like, Oh wow, this is supposed to make me feel good. And I feel terrible. It must not have been the alcohol. It's got to be something else. So I'll go ahead and drink again and then I'll figure out the other thing. <laughs> and that's really just a trick that your brain is, again, it's trying to protect you and it knows this feeling you're having is awful. And that one thing that really always made you feel better, you could go back to that again. So there's where it's so important to talk to that lizard brain and go, oh, there I go again, reverting back to an external feel good. I've got to learn for it to be internal because internal is what lasts. External will always fade. And people can create their own internal chemicals. You don't have to have an external source of those chemicals. And that's what I work really hard to teach people how to create your own chemical responses because if you're depending on the world or other external sources, you're always at their mercy, whether it be other people, yeah. whether it be alcohol, whether it be shopping, anything external, you're at the mercy of it. But when you create your own, you're in control of those chemicals. And so dopamine yeah. and serotonin are what are falling off, you know, and creating this balance system. So if you can start creating dopamine and serotonin for yourself, then it'll kind of, you know, help that brain start building the balance. Serotonin is the social, you know, chemical and self-esteem, but sunshine is one of the best ways to get a quick serotonin boost. Calling a friend, which is why the connection piece works so well. Um, getting exercise, moving your body helps, you know, reboost endorphins and serotonin levels. Dopamine is one of those things that is really fast coming in, but it's also fast going out. It's a, one of the 
quicker chemicals, but music is quick. It's a quick way to get dopamine. And this is the caveat. It can't just be songs you like or songs you want to sing because I love 1980s air supply. But every time I sing that, I'm all out of love, I'm so lost, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the song my boyfriend played when he broke up with me, you know? <laughs> so you don't want to activate that. If you play music that has a beat that makes you want to bounce, so listen for music that makes you bounce because that's telling you that you've got that, that bouncy feeling, you're in creating the excitatory response. So I have a playlist on my phone and it's my happy music. And so anytime I feel my mood shifting or the desire for something to make me feel better besides myself, I turn on that playlist because I've got to be in control of my own chemicals. And by the time I've played three or four of those songs, I'm like, oh yeah, I feel better. And that's a fast way. Humor is another quick way to give yourself some endorphins and dopamine. So I also have on my phone a playlist. It's called The Laughter List. And I just go to YouTube and I save funny videos that always make me laugh. Like it can be anything. Funny cat videos or Charlie bit me. You know, whatever. It can be anything. And when you are feeling that down, go listen to those. Go laugh because laughter activates your chemicals. When you're in charge of your own chemicals, you're no longer at the mercy of external sources. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Wow, that's that's great advice. I I love the idea of having a happy playlist. You know, I think I think people in our community that are struggling in those early days, they they would really benefit from that. Because obviously, we recommend that people exercise. But I, I always think that when you do go out and exercise, if you're listening to your happy music as well, you're getting yeah. like a double dose, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, you're, happy you're getting a double bump. And I think too, I always tell people ten minutes. Go ten minutes because. A lot of times the word exercise, especially here in the States, it makes people think, oh my gosh, I've got to go to CrossFit and do giant ropes or ah, you know, do all that. But really, if you'll just move your body for 10 minutes, that will activate the chemicals, whether it be a walk outside. I hula hoop every day. Hula hooping is so good for your brain because it's constantly shifting right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain, because you're in that rotation system. It also has to keep your brain in a balanced state. I'm not, you know, profusely sweating or anything like that, but it's a movement. The movement is important. Also jumping up and down, just straight up and down. If you have a mini tramp or a little rebounder, those are great. They found research that that also dumps out your lymphatic system. It helps clean out your lymph nodes and your, your lymphatic system. It also is super great for your brain. So don't think that exercise has to be a workout. Those are two separate things. It's just movement. Move your body because that's telling your brain you value your body. And my body is in control. It's the holder of this brain. And so you're telling yourself, I value me. And because when you are addicted to things, subconsciously you are saying, I have no value. I need something to make me feel better because who I am is not good enough and what I am is not good enough. Wow, that's that's more great advice there, Stacey. I, I love the hula hoop. I used to do that when I was a little girl, but I think I'll get one. <laughs> but I, I do have a mini trampoline. So because I'm one of those people, I get so absorbed in what I'm doing on the computer, you know, I can sit here for hours. So I have a mini trampoline just on my terrace and I, I have a timer every hour. I just go and jump for five yes. minutes and it, you know, helps the, the limp, yes. as you say. And I didn't realize it was good for the mm -hmm. brain and, and the posture as well. Yeah, but our, our brains aren't designed to be happy all the time, are they? Because it wasn't uh, it was all about our ancestors chasing food and then they got happy and then 
we're not designed to be happy 24 7 no, whatever instagram tells yeah us. we're not designed to be happy <laughs> at all um because your brain is lazy and then that's goes against what you think your brain does because you think it's this you know power source which it is but it is lazy and it's designed for two things speed and efficiency and protection so the it's speed and efficiency just means I have old patterns. I'll use those. I don't have to spend my my time connecting new neuron pathways and rebuilding. I'll just use that one I used for the last 30 years, which is just probably a terrible one. Um, and it's protecting you from physical and emotional dangers or activations, which is what trauma and triggers do. And so joy is not a threat to your survival. There's no class out there that says, learn to be sad in three easy steps. Like you already can be sad in three easy, your brain automatically does that. But yet people have to work very hard to be happy and stay happy because it's not a natural process for the brain. And that's why I call myself the happiness expert is because I am intentional every day about creating happiness because it is not automatic for my brain. And if you're sitting around waiting for happiness to come to you, you're going to be there a long time. <laughs> and you're always at the mercy of whoever or whatever, the new house, the new car, the new boyfriend, the new shoes, whatever. I'm not waiting on new shoes. I'm going to go make myself happy. And I do it every single day on purpose because my brain is not going to do it for me. And when people just understand that one thing, your brain is either automatic or intentional. That's it. And you're sliding it over every day from one side to the other. And when I catch myself in an automatic bad mood, things have triggered me. And all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I'm getting a headache. I'm getting frustrated. I yelled at my son who had nothing to do with it. I'm like, there I go again. I say that phrase a thousand times a day. There I go again, reacting in automatic mode, I've got to shift it over here and I'll turn on my music. I'll go outside and hula hoop or I'll go outside and watch hummingbirds do something on purpose to reactivate those chemicals because your brain is not going to make you happy without you. Yeah. Yeah. So our brain isn't meant to be happy. And also I've learned that our brain tends to focus on what we don't have rather than what we have on our unmet needs, if that's the, the right word. So that must be why the gratitude practice works so well, because we're focusing on what we do have, don't right. we? And it's so, I call it the thought thief. And your thoughts are stealing your joy. Because most of the time we're focusing on the things we don't have, the things we wish were different. And I always say people have two lives, the one they wish they had and the one they actually have. And where success is, is the merging of those two things. And when you, the life you want is similar to the one you have, that's when you feel successful. That's why success looks different to all different people, because they each have a different desire of what life should be. and. So your happiness and your ability to reach this success place is, is, is based on looking at what you have. Because if you're constantly like, oh my gosh, I don't have a million dollars. I don't have the car she's got. I don't have the husband she's got. All those things, your brain's like, oh yeah, we don't have anything. We're a loser. And it starts dumping out the chemicals, cortisol, norepinephrine, um, things that are making you feel bad. And that's how you can understand what your chemicals are doing. If you feel bad, you're probably releasing chemicals that are making you feel that way. If you feel good, you are releasing chemicals to make you feel good. So whether it's depression, anxiety, frustration, humiliation, embarrassment, whatever, that feels bad, I always go, oh my gosh, I'm releasing bad chemicals. I've got to flip it over here and start dumping out some good ones. And I'll just turn on my laughter list and I'll watch, you know, three videos that make me laugh, which is why TikTok is so popular because the research now shows that um, the average adult attention span is 15 seconds, which is why Instagram stories and TikTok are 15 second videos. 
That's as long as the brain will hold most things. But what is TikTok? It's full of people dancing and being silly and funny. And it boomed during the pandemic because people needed laughter and they weren't, of course, they weren't going, I'll put some, put some joy in my brain, but it was felt good. And now people sit and scroll for eight hours and they're not, you know, being being very productive. It's also becoming kind of an addiction because your brain is like, I need to feel better right now. But if you use it, you know, in short doses, it can be great. It's funny. It's good for you to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you've uh, you've taught us some great quick fixes just in this short interview. Thank you so much. I'm going to list them all in my kind of wrap up to the podcast. Um, just the last thing you touched on the pandemic there, and obviously when we smile, you know, we release chemicals and it makes us feel good. But what about all these masks? Oh. You know, has that had an impact? Do you think on the the vibe in society? Definitely, definitely, and I. I know, you know, there was a a health reason that we needed masks, but I also think later on, we're going to see some of the damage that was done by the continual not being able to see each other's face. And part of what the right hemisphere in the brain does is it, it creates the story. So your brain has two hemispheres, even though they're working simultaneously and the myth of your right brain or left brain. It's like a myth that won't go away because you're, you're, you're whole brained all the time, but there are certain things that are activated on certain hemispheres, but we look for faces and we see faces in clouds. We see faces in art projects. I mean, that's just the way the human brain is working is to look for facial features. And when we are only getting a portion, it's hard for the brain to like adjust to reading someone's expression, reading their emotions. Should I be scared? Should I be okay? Am I feeling safe? And a smile is one of the ways that we understand our safety. They're a nice person. Oh, they accept me. That goes back to that social connection. Oh, they smile. Oh, I see it in their, in their facial expressions on their cheeks, all the things. And taking that away and only looking at somebody's eyes you know, even though you, you try to smile with your eyes, it's still very hard. And the mirror neurons, when other people smile at you, automatically activate in your brain, which ought to give you a little bump of, you know, happy chemicals as well. And I always wonder what babies who have lived, you know, in the pandemic for a year and only, you know, seen people's eyes, I always wonder later on how that's going to affect their ability to read social cues and emotions because we do need to see that mirror neurons i've learned about those recently and uh, in our community we have some people quite a lot of people that have got sober you know with us and they're still with the community because they're now helping Uh other people and they're they're great role models because they're thriving in their alcohol-free life and doing lots of really interesting things and feeling great so I, I always think when the newbies are looking at them, it, it must be the, the mirror neurons that are looking uh, are at work there and inspiring yeah. them. That's why they get inspired. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. So remember to work with your brain the way your brain was designed to work. Talk to that lizard because if you don't talk to it, it's going to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much, Stacey. There's some brilliant advice there. Um, how can people get in touch with you? I'm sure a few of my listeners are already wanting to know more. Well, I would love to talk to them. Um, the best place is either Instagram or my website. Um, my Instagram is at Stacy Danford and it's Stacy with an I. And my website is thegratefulbrain.com. And there's tons of free resources right there on the homepage. Lots of things you can get to activate your happy chemicals. And I try to post every day on Instagram to give people practical ways that they can use their brain to build a better life. So there you heard me talking to Stacey Danford. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. Stacey's husband walked out on her just before her 50th birthday. She was devastated at the time, but now the years have passed, she's able to look back and see that event as a catalyst for change, a real wake-up call. 
Looking back with her current knowledge of the brain, she now understands that she had no neural pathways to cope with such an event and that's why she was so devastated. She'd made the big mistake of putting all her happiness in the hands of one person. Realising that she must take responsibility for her own happiness, she went to grad school to study neuroscience. She explained that our brain tricks us into thinking that alcohol is making us happy, but in fact, as we all know, it's a depressant. If you've been drinking alcohol for years, then it will have altered the balance of your brain, which is why you become increasingly dependent. The good news is that when we understand our brains better, we can actually work with them, and that's when the magic will happen. A great analogy is to think of how we use our computers. We work with the programs that are installed in our computers. We don't work against them. Understanding our brains means that we can understand our behaviours better. We need to create what Stacy called a pattern interrupter. We mustn't try to alter multiple habits at the same time. Far better to focus on just one at a time. Here at Tribe Sober, we always say, just chase one rabbit at a time. If you chase several rabbits, then the chances are that they'll all escape. Stacy advises that we focus on our successes. So perhaps writing in our journal, today I resisted a drink, is going to keep us focused. If you listen to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 55, which was called The Happy Brain with Loretta Bruning, you may remember that she recommended setting an overall goal and dividing it up into smaller goals. This will keep our happy chemicals flowing as just aiming for a mini goal will trigger dopamine and of course we'll feel good when we reach it. And Stacey's in complete agreement with Loretta and use the marathon analogy. If we sign up for a marathon, we don't immediately go out and try to run 26 miles. We design a training program and divide it into daily sessions, running just a little bit further every day. You can find a great example of how we can apply this to drinking on episode 15 of the Tribe Sober podcast. One of our sober springers, Kai, he achieved 66 alcohol-free days, then he aimed for 100 days, then six months, then a year... And now here he is three years later and he still hasn't had a drink. But still he doesn't say it's forever. Stacy talked about our primitive lizard brain, which will go on autopilot unless we intervene. She actually gives her lizard brain a name. She calls him Earl and she calls him out if he tries to hijack her behaviour. What a great idea. She confirmed that our 66-day Sober Spring Challenge is long enough to create a new neural pathway to change our drinking patterns. She also said that she believed that the secret source of our Sober Spring Challenge was the community support. We talked about the fact that our drinking neural pathway will always be with us, especially if we've been drinking for years. And it's so easy to reactivate it if we start trying to moderate after a period of sobriety. Stacy loves our goodbye to alcohol letters and suggests that we read them regularly to, just to remind ourselves how bad the drinking got. We ended our conversation with a list of quick tips from Stacy to boost our happy chemicals. Feel the sun on your face. Phone a friend. Exercise. Music. Create a playlist of your happy music. Humour. Look at some TikTok videos hula hoops and jumping on the mini trampoline, they'll all give you a boost. And as Stacy says, when you're in charge of your own brain chemicals, you are no longer at the mercy of outside forces. Don't wait for your brain to make you happy. Do the work. You can follow Stacy on Instagram, Stacy Danford, Stacy with a C, and her website is called thegratefulbrain.com. You heard neuroscientist Stacy give our Sober Spring Challenge the thumbs up, so why don't you join us this year? Sober Spring is a lot of fun because everybody goes through the days together. And apart from the community support, you get 66 days of online and audio support. And if you want to hear from some Sober Spring graduates about how Sober Spring changed their lives, then have a listen to Tribe Sober Podcasts, episode 12, 15, 16 and 21. 
Here in South Africa, spring starts in September. But even if it's not spring where you live, you can still sign up for the challenge. Just go to tribesober.com to get more info. We've also got a membership bonus on offer this month. Just sign up as a subscription member and we'll include a complimentary Sober Spring Challenge with your membership. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.